This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new and recent movies and developments in film and compares them to films from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca, and I am the regular film guru on CTV Morning Live. And this week is a very sad episode. We lost a number of major names and major influences in the world of film and we're going to try and look at some highlights of their career over the next hour people like film composer ennio morricone british actor of stage and screen ian holm carl reiner the multi-talent from tv and film and stage and page and everything and also one of our favorite character actors john saxon all in the next hour coming up on lens me your ears So yeah, Stephen, as you say, on this episode of Lens Mirror Ears, we it's an in-memoriam episode, and we have done this a few times in the past when the giants of uh, cinema internationally and otherwise have passed away, and we have good memories, and you know, it also allows us to go and revisit their best work, uh, or work of, of theirs that we maybe haven't had a chance to see before, and uh, we're going to start, I believe, with Ennio Morricone the Roman-born composer. He was born in 1928, and he died on July 6th of this year, also in Rome, at age 91. He scored more than 400 movies over his career. And uh, those movies include every Sergio Leone movie since A Fistful of Dollars, every Giuseppe uh, Tornatore film since Cinema Paradiso. He scored Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, John Carpenter's The Thing, Mission to Mars. He uh, also recently did Tarantino's nasty Western, The Hateful Eight, which won him an Oscar, though Tarantino had also used bits of Morricone's music in Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. Uh, uh, Morricone also earned three Golden Globes and three Grammy Awards. Uh, So, yeah, this is actually great, a great opportunity to talk about his work, you know, even though under these sad circumstances, because I mean, first off, I I think I'm glad to have an opportunity to talk about a composer on this podcast. You know, we've done actors and directors and writers uh, looking at their body of work, but we've never done a composer. And it feels right that we should certainly consider how much music plays a role in in feature films uh my first experience with ennio morricone was uh the music from the first three clint eastwood westerns that he made with leone fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and the good the bad and the ugly uh i remember going i was living in london as a teenager and i went and found a cassette that had the the scores from all three films obviously not the entire score but just like the the best of or the most prominent themes from those films and i i played quite a lot um and the music it really just leapt off the screen and it may have been the first time i'd really understood how powerful a score could be as a storytelling device you know maybe outside a, a james bond movie or uh you know actually another uh sort of important score for me growing up was flash gordon and the queen score on that in that movie but but yeah this was different you know this is uh morcone had a you know he did something that was unmistakably him and every time you hear his music i mean it, even with all the diverse sounds and the diverse scores and the diverse movies that he did you can kind of always tell 
when it's one of his scores because he just had something special. And I don't know what that exactly that thing was, Stephen, uh, but maybe maybe you have some insight into that. Well, uh, he was he was certainly a man of all styles when it came to films. I don't think there's any kind of film that he didn't score. He didn't seem to have a preference for uh, one particular type of film. He worked with so many different kinds of filmmakers. And uh, I, I always wonder, like, how much did he actually enjoy movies? <laughs> I always wonder, uh, you know, because he, he certainly talked about music at length and how how he made you know, music for the film. And often the directors would make the film suit his music. He was one of the few composers that had that kind of power because the people he worked with had so much respect for him. Um, you know, but but once once his music goes on a film, it's often the most memorable thing about it in the cases of some of the lesser projects that he worked on. And for a guy who composed hundreds of film scores, you can bet there are some lesser films that have Ennio Marconi scores. Um, and I, I guess... Uh, I guess like most people, my first exposure to his music would have been through those Sergio Leone Italian Westerns. Um, although I suspect that before I ever saw one of the Dollars trilogies or you know one of the um, later films that he worked on with Leone, I suspect that, uh, I mean, the good, the bad, and the ugly theme was so kind of embedded in popular culture that it was it was kind of a, an entity unto itself. I remember a series of muffler commercials that were Canadian. I think it was for um, I think it was for Midas muffler. I, I might have that wrong. That they're on YouTube. Uh, but th- there was there were a series of uh, of muffler ads with Lee Van Cleef playing this tough, uh, you know, mechanic who's, you know, Mister Muffler or whatever who's gonna like, you know, get your car back on the road or whatever and. And uh, they actually used either if they didn't use the original kind of, you know, that kind of theme. (laughs) Sorry, you know what? Exactly. My my parrot Alfie actually does a better job of whistling it than I do. But uh, (laughs) but I believe they either used that theme in the ads or a variation on it that they could get away with without having to pay any royalties. And that was kind of my first exposure to certainly to Lee Van Cleef. But also to the notion of these larger-than-life, uh, you know, grandiose operatic westerns, and eventually I did get to see these in the early days of VHS. So I got to see them on a small screen, panned and scanned with like you know half or more of the image cut off, uh, coming out of a tinny speaker, uh, and generally with half of the storyline cut out of them. And that that was kind of my earliest exposure to the the Sergio Leone westerns and. Uh, even in those forms, even watching the good, the bad, and the ugly on a 20-inch screen with the panorama completely uh, slaughtered by pan and scan, uh, I could tell how great these films were, and the music was certainly a big part of it. Especially when you get to that big, you know, three-person shootout at the end of the film and the run through the cemetery. The music just, just it almost lifts you out of your seat. It's so powerful in the way it conforms to the to the imagery and, and the way the editing conforms to the music. And, you know, from then on, I, you know, as soon as I recognized that name and how special that music was, I was kind of hooked. I, I uh, would pick up his records at flea markets. I still have copies of, of those soundtracks that I got, you know, for a buck in a bin at the Halifax forum and stuff like that. And I, and thankfully those records weren't too hard to come by in those days. You know, it was good to always pour through the soundtrack section at Taz or whatever. And I was, you know, and eventually I had a job, 
where at a radio station where some of those records would actually show up at work and I would just take them home because who else is going to use them? So I've got like albums. I've got the, the Untouchable soundtrack that I got as a promo. Um, he did a soundtrack for the miniseries version of the story of Marco Polo, uh, which, you know, is probably completely forgotten now. Uh, and I remember Leonard Nimoy was in it. I can't remember who else was in it, but uh, I have a soundtrack for that. And he gets to incorporate some Asian themes into his work in that film. It's not something he was normally doing. And and uh, and then there was, uh, at some point in, the, I think, the late 80s, there's a really terrific tribute to his music called The Big Gun Down. And uh, The Big Gun Down, of course, is a terrific spaghetti western uh, that features Lee Van Cleef and the Morricone score. I think it's a Sergio Carbucci film. Uh, I, I, I may be mistaken on that, but that's what I remember. And uh, it's John Zorn, the, um, the avant-garde jazz composer and musician uh john zorn assembled a bunch of his buddies uh, his cohorts people like bill frizzell and so on and uh and they did this tribute to the music of morricone and that's in fact how i heard a lot of these themes that we'll be talking about today like that's the first time i heard battle of algiers was their very intense and very loud take on the music of the battle of algiers and uh I, that record thrilled me then and it still thrills me uh you know, uh, 30 years later. So, uh, and, and then, you know, I just, as a matter of course, I kept uh, seeing his music pop up in films I was watching. Cause he, he, he worked on art films. He worked on Hollywood films. He worked on comedies and horror movies. Um, you know, and, and I did see if, you know, a number of films in the theater when they came out, things like cinema Paradiso and the untouchables, uh, uh, the mission and fat man and little boy which I don't know how many people remember that film about the atomic, the early days of the atomic bomb. I remember it. Paul, sure. New, Paul Newman. And yeah. the, it's got a great Ennio Morricone score, kind of an unpredictable place for his music to pop up, you know, cause that seems like the kind of movie that anybody could have done. But um, he was kind of uh, on a bit of a, a bit of a hot streak with Hollywood producers, I guess at that point. And, and I remember watching it and there's a scene where they're trucking the, um, components of the bomb out to the desert where they're going to have the first A-bomb test. And there's this martial, you know, the snare drums going and the piano's pounding. And it's like, I just, I'm just sitting there going, well, this is just the Battle of Algiers theme slightly rewritten. And then I went, well, he's Ennio Morricone. If anybody can rip themselves off, it's going to be... <laughs> he's, he's, he's only ripping himself off. So, you know, who's going to notice? And it was... Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. And it worked perfectly, you know. But but I, I, feel, like, uh, I feel like that's a motif that kind of those rattling snare drums, you know, I think, I feel like that's his, I think he owns that. Yeah. You know, considering how fair, considering how far it goes back. I mean, it does show up in other things like the great escape and maybe the dirty dozen, but I feel like he really kind of etched that in stone himself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's that, that blurring the lines between, uh, diegetic sound and the score like he did that in once upon a time in the west which we could we're going to talk about a little bit um you know with the the fact that uh so many of those early films the sound wasn't recorded on set right they would they do they did adr for all the actors lines so so uh and and the and the score you know in that film especially you've got charles bronson who, who's playing a harmonica that's a big part of the plot uh, and you can hear the harmonica on the score, and we're supposed to, I guess, believe that he's playing that sound, even though it seems like it's, you know, from <laughs> the gods. Yes. And uh, and uh, but but um, 
there was something about that too, about the fact that uh, that there wasn't any. Uh, it was all MOS, as they say on film sets. There was no sound recorded on the set. Meet that, out uh, sound. Meet out sound. Exactly. That uh, that gave it this sort of otherworldly quality and this sort of either hyper unreal or hyper real, I guess, depending on your perspective. Uh, and the score had a, such a big part of that. Now, it's funny that I say that while um, then speaking about the Battle of Algiers, which you brought up already, uh, Portokovo's, um, uh, Corvo's, excuse me, classic tale of the Algerian revolution shot less than 10 years after the actual events that it depicts, but shot on location. And I can't think of another movie that feels so authentic. Like, I didn't know a lot about the Algerian Revolution before I watched this film. But I feel like I've seen it because this film is so... I mean, the, the filmmaker has uh, chops, you know, made documentary filmmaker. So, I mean, he has these kind of docudrama chops. But uh, I love this film. I love how it includes date and timestamps to add to that feeling of this happened here. Uh, and I love how gorgeously shot and edited it is with a huge cast many people you only see glancingly but they all make a real impact you really get a sense of community here and i i think that's what's so important about the battle of algiers is that you get through all these faces and these actors you get a sense of community um and morcone's score is piano and strings driven but it's very much more of a thriller kind of score, the way at least I think of a score for a thriller. It adds a lot of drama to the scenes of violence. Uh, you know, a lot of scenes of revolutionaries with pistols shooting the French cops in cafes and on street corners. But it also sort of bubbles up under the action. Uh, you know, some filmmakers used Morcone's score, as you mentioned, like right up front, like where it almost, the music almost defines what you're watching. Whereas the Battle of Algiers, I feel like the music, there are scenes where the music is, is absolutely there on the surface, so to speak. But there are also scenes where it's insinuating underneath. And uh, I really, really love that about the film. It's, this film is just doesn't age. Like, it was made in 66. And as I said, you know, depicting events that happened in 57. And it's uh, it just... It's as vital and as relevant. It feels as relevant now as it, as I'm sure it ev has ever done. Yes, it's it, the impact of this film. That uh, I mean, the documentary style. I can't imagine in telling this story any other way, really. And uh, if you have either the DVD or Blu-ray of the Battle of Algiers, or or um, some other titles that feature Morricone's music via Criterion. A lot of those extras are on the Criterion channel, and I was able to watch uh, a couple of these uh, segments, and there's there's a terrific one um, just on Battle of Algiers. There's also an, a longer one that came uh, with um, a great Italian thriller called The Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, where basically a high-ranking police official uh, commits a murder and then goes about trying to uh, and, and does it in a way that you know, knowing that he can steer the investigation away from himself or thinking that he can steer it away from himself. And that's basically, basically the, the theme of the movies that this, this uh, officer is trying to, you know, deflect, uh, deflect any suspicion or criticism uh, about this case uh, as, as it draws near. And, and there's a, there's a, a lengthy uh, interview with an Italian film critic in Morricone where he talks about the different themes in the film. And he talks about um, how, some of those themes intersect with other films on similar topics that he he'll bring he will like bring variations of themes from other movies 
uh, into play in later movies and whether, whether the director he's working with knows it or not, he likes to, he, he's, he's also thinking of his own oeuvre and maybe how it'll work in a concert program. So he talks about some of the similarities between that film and another film he made called the Sicilian clan, which is a terrific, uh, Alain Delon film about the influence of the Sicilian crime family. So, uh, there's, you know, there are all these threads going through the movies that he works on. And then there's these threads going through his own music, uh, that, you know, maybe he, he knew he'd be able to use it for his own purposes down the road. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in, in this man's mind. He, he was definitely some kind of genius. Uh, and, you know, aside from the skill of being able to make scores for so many films, like if you look at the year 1970 alone, there's like one, you know, there's like over 10 movies that he scored in 1970. It's just uh, unbelievable how, how yeah, prolific he that's was. That's bonkers. Um, but one thing that he said in one of those shorts, and I think it was the one on investigation of a citizen above suspicion, is that uh, he believed, you know, he 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 wasn't an egotist. Like he wasn't he he wasn't someone who felt that you know that that uh, you know I'm the most important thing in this movie or anything like that. You know, he did he did believe in the music being, you know, a part of the whole, and he talked about that that music should only be used when absolutely essential. Uh, and, uh, cause you know, you see a, a lot of films where there's just wall to wall score and he, he was not such an egoist that he felt that every scene needed to have a piece by him in it. Maybe, maybe that's why he was so productive. He only, he didn't have to compose music for the, the whole film, just the key moments, but, but, uh, but he was, you know, and, and he was a firm believer in other types of, uh, uses of sound and, and, uh, and, and engaging the viewers in ways that weren't just necessarily full-on orchestral score so i i love that that he had a very balanced approach to how his music should be used in films um like for i mean for example I, somewhere i read i i mean there's so much to read about this film but in once upon a time in the west the opening scene with uh, the gunslingers at the train station uh you know it's completely silent except for the ambient sound the squeaky windmill the the footsteps on the wooden planks the 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 fly, right, the fly and the gun barrel, all this stuff. And, and apparently they did try it with music initially. And, and it was apparently more Connie's suggestion that no, no, let's, let's not, uh, let's not bring that, uh, bit of uh, ammo into play just yet. And, uh, you know, let's just let the scene play, uh, as just with, you know, I say natural sound, of course it's all Foley and, and done in post-production, but, but as a result, the scene is so much more memorable that memorable than if it had had, some kind of music underneath and then it makes the music when it does come in you know especially when uh you know harmonica uh the charles bronson character really comes into focus uh you know so much more powerful so yeah he 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 definitely knew how music should be used yeah no he absolutely did and i really enjoyed revisiting once upon a time in the in the west yeah you know i was familiar with with Leone's work and through the Eastwood films and you know there's the sort of his style has been kind of um, satirized in the years since I mean this one feels in some ways like 70% close-ups of people staring at each other as the score translates their emotions you know there are those super epic dramatic moments uh, but uh, but you know it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful technique that uh, defines what Leone did in in partnership with Morricone, and uh, this one in particular is is sort of a grand elegaic story of the old west of good and evil. Um, you know, to me emotionally, it felt like it almost had as much to do with 
uh, as co- in common with epics of the past like Gone with the Wind as it does with Leone's other westerns. Um, and it never misses an opportunity to luxuriate in the opulent sets and wide, widescreen vistas. And the script, Leone, Bernardo Bertolucci, and Dario Argento, these giants of Italian cinema, um, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a film that feels very much of its time, but it, it, uh, in the way it's paced and the way it's, it's created, but it's, it is a feast for the eyes and for the ears. And, uh, yeah, I think, um, I know, it was great to see Henry Fonda in one of his best roles as the bad guy with his piercing blue eyes. Uh, and speaking of eyes, Claudia Cardinale, oh. her amazing eyes. Like this, this is a film of actors' eyes. There's just so much going on there. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it's uh, it's slow going in places, but and it might test the patience of those folks who who listening who've never seen these kinds of movies, but. Uh, but it's something special. Yeah, every time it gets re-released, they find more scraps of footage to make it even longer. Uh, and you can go down a rabbit hole of, well, compared to the Italian DVD, this is missing that uh, five-second scene of Charles Bronson uh, wiping his forehead. You know, it just it never it never ends with these films because of the way they were distributed and mangled for different uh, marketplaces and so on. But uh, you know, I I find it completely gripping. It's it's uh, you know, it wasn't until years later I found out it was partially inspired by the old Joan Crawford Western Johnny Guitar. Um, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, and uh, where uh, basically Harmonica and Cheyenne, played by Jason Robards, are kind of a, a, a version of the Sterling Hayden character in, um, in, in Johnny Guitar, who comes to the rescue of tough Western bar owner, you know, played by jo- Joan Crawford and so on. But uh, there are some... S- thematic similarities but they're completely different movies uh you know this is definitely more operatic i mean it's even more operatic than the good the bad and the ugly which i didn't think was possible until i actually got the chance to see this again on a crappy vhs copy but um you know and then the laser disc came out and then a dvd and then a blu-ray and i've bought every single version of this movie uh and and you know having the different themes for all the characters you know the of course, Harmonica speaks for himself. Uh, Frank, the character played by Henry Fonda, has that insane guitar that, you know, I mean, I remember playing the record. I think I may have even had the LP soundtrack uh, before I even saw the film. And just the, the guitar that comes screaming out of, you know, just the distortion and the reverb and everything on that guitar is, you know, that had never been heard in a movie before, even though he used guitar quite a bit but nothing like that and uh you know when when frank and his crew just walk out of the dust and the and the brush you know after that initial murder at uh, stillwater um is just such an unbelievable scene they're like kind of, oh sweetwater. Is sweetwater. sweetwater sweetwater yes sorry yes, yes. um <laughs> was it stillwater is that the band in uh almost famous in almost famous yeah <laughs> i knew I, I do i that's not the first time i've done that either um uh, you know that's, that's such a sort of mythic kind of scene and then of course Claudia Cardinale has that kind of operatic, um, gorgeous theme. You know, when she first arrives in town, gets off the train, and then there's that famous crane shot that is obviously inspired by Gone with the Wind, the, the crane shot of all the wounded soldiers. In this case, it comes up over the, the train station. You see the town kind of starting to, to come to life. And uh, there's that uh, the voice that uh, Morricone used throughout his career. I believe Edda Del Orsa, I think, is the soprano's name who just, you know, is just sings those wordless, those wordless lyrics, I want to call it, but, you know, basically sings the melodic line. Um, 
you know, as, as the crane comes up and then the, 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 the buggy that she's riding and goes through Monument Valley, the first Italian Western to shoot in the actual West, I believe. Um, and, uh, and so we've got the, we've got this epic of gone with the wind plus the myth of the West that John Ford put on the screen in his films, all kind of coming together in this one scene as she, she rides out to, to the homestead. Um, and then we've got the jokey side with Cheyenne and that twangy banjo theme, um, which, you know, in later, like in, um, duck you sucker, which would be his next collaboration, I believe with, uh, with Leone, that kind of idea would be taken even further. The kind of jokey, quirky, upbeat, but somehow still menacing kind of sound. Um, I just, I, I, you know, I, I love the balance between the, the four themes and the, the different corners of the story. And, uh, yeah, it just, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. It just brings those characters to life in a way that, uh, straight up filming and editing and acting, you know, it's, it's the fourth part of, of that, um, of that mix that to bring it to life. And yeah, yeah, for it's, sure. It's really just a wonderful balance. For sure. Now we have a lot more to talk about with, uh, Morricone. So, uh, let's pause and, uh, we'll come back and talk more about him and some other giants, uh, that we have sadly lost recently. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. And today it's an in memoriam episode. We're paying tribute to some greats of the film world that we've lost just in the last week. It's, it's, it's been astonishing. Um, how many, uh, of these, uh, I don't want to say legends, but certainly favorite faces and talents uh, that we've enjoyed over the years. It's sad to see them go all at ripe old ages, I should admit. But um, and certainly Morricone uh, passing away at the age of 91 after an incredible career. I mean, that's that's I think that's to be envied, you know, to be able to have that kind of run of success in so many different kinds of films with so many different filmmakers, uh, you know, from Sergio Leone to Quentin Tarantino. Uh, who I think first used his music in Kill Bill, if I'm not mistaken. I think that might be the first time he incorporated a past um, a past Morricone uh, film cue into one of his films prior to actually working with him on The Hateful Eight. And uh, and we still we're still going to talk about Morricone in this segment. Uh, we're in segment number two because there's just so many films to talk about. And as I mentioned in the first half, uh, you know, there's there's no type of music or no type of movie he didn't score. I mean, historical dramas. You know, I mentioned a, a miniseries about Marco Polo. He also did a film about Galileo. Uh, he did the great comic book spy movie, Danger Diabolique with uh, Mario Bava. Uh, he did a spy spoof called OK Connery, a 007 spoof with Sean Connery's brother and many cast members from other James Bond movies uh, making cameo appearances. Um, in, in, not a film worth hunting down, mind you, but he did compose a fun kind of peppy theme song with lyrics that are pretty hilarious for that particular film. If you're in the mood, we've definitely talked up. about that before. I think in our spice spoofs. Yes, I think so. I think it did come up in our spice spoof. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, and you know, straight up crime films, uh, Sicilian Clan. Uh, I think Violent City, which is another one that um, had uh, had uh, Charles Bronson in it. And I'll also I'll, I'll throw a recommendation out for The Great Silence, which is a terrific Western uh, starring uh, uh, J- 
Jean-Louis Trintignant, the great French actor who plays a mute gunslinger in a remote mountain town. So it's it's one of the few uh, Italian westerns to have a snowy setting, and and the score for that is, is just fantastic. I mean, you, you almost can't go wrong with any any film that he's going to have a score on it. Uh, but uh, we're going to jump ahead a little bit into the '70s. He worked on a, a trio of films with uh, Dario Argento. He also worked on some later Argento films, but he did do the the scores for three films, which are basically the first three Argento thrillers, uh, which are referred to as the Animal Trilogy, called uh, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and then The Cat o' Nine Tales, and that was followed by uh, Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Uh, So you've got The Bird, The Cat, and The Fly, and they're all terrific films. Uh, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, only recently appeared on home video because there are some music rights issues because it, it it's actually about a rock band. So, you know, we're starting to see the, the sort of the hard rock, the current rock and progressive rock influences creep into Morricone's scores more and more during this period. Uh, you know, he's the, uh, the discordant influences of modern composers. Uh, they've always been part of his work, but they're more present here uh, mainly because these films are so unnerving that using that kind of discordant kind of Stockhausen, approach uh really works well when you apply it to a thriller with with uh, horrible knife murders happening in them you know jarring chords and and shrieking notes and all that kind of stuff uh you know he put them to good use in such a commercial uh venue and you know any of those argento films are, are, are certainly worth seeing uh and and then uh he kind of eases into a more we use the word elegiac a lot to describe Morricone's music, but it's it's true. He 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 he's, he gets into this kind of more romantic, more purely orchestral kind of phase uh, into the '80s, especially when he starts working with more uh, Hollywood productions or West. I don't want to say Western, but but certainly better known, uh, you know, major studio uh, productions. And uh, I think the the one that uh, that really kind of put him in a different kind of commercial light, if you will, is, is the mission from 1986 directed by Roland Joffe. And it's uh, it's a tale of Spanish Jesuits uh, trying to uh, convert natives in, in um, South, South America. Uh, and I think that but they're right on the border between Portuguese and Spanish territories. And those two, those two countries have very different approaches to how the native tribes are are meant to be dealt with and on top of that there's of course the roman catholic church and both those countries also have very different approaches to how they deal with the roman catholic church so there's all these different elements in play um as jeremy irons and robert de niro who was a slave trader who becomes converted to becoming a missionary um they're they're trying to at first they're trying to save the souls of, of these people and eventually they're just trying to save these people from the colonial onslaught of Spanish and Portugal which is you know considering the military might of those two uh, sea merchant countries is, is a pretty uh, astounding thing to take on and and that's what the mission's about uh, and it uh, it does a really wonderful job of telling this very complex story and Morricone's music uh, really brings out the atmosphere in, in this story. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm watching The Mission again. I hadn't seen it in many years, as with many of the films that we talk about here on the podcast. Um, it was really lovely to watch it again. I thought uh, De Niro is in his most magnetic in this era. Uh, you know, he is um, right around now. He, um, you know, he also did Angel Heart in this period, and he's got the long hair, he's got the full beard, uh, and he's, he's very fit 
And uh, yeah, it's uh, he's he's a, he is the sort of star of the piece, I think. But he he uh, he works well with Jeremy Irons, who brings a more sort of pensive, uh, I think of sort of English uh, sophistication to his part. But uh, you know, it's it's a story of of colonialism and and the damage that uh, that these co- these countries and these states, these powers did to the indigenous people and the indigenous land. Um, it's a little bit, uh, I would have called it a, a white savior movie in some respects, except that, uh, there's not a lot of saving that goes on not to uh, spoil the ending here, but things don't go well, uh, for, for the people that we're supposed to be rooting for. Um, but yeah, the score is gorgeous. Apparently it was a big, it was very popular as separate from the film. And, uh, I noticed that there are flutes and pan, a little bit of pan flutes here, but it's a lot more deep into the mix uh, for you know, in a full orchestral um, you know score. Uh, but uh, one thing I noticed, uh, and we're talking about his films also from this era that uh, Morcone worked on. I saw Once Upon a Time in America, the Jewish gangster yes. uh, picture by Sergio Leone, which is an amazing movie. And uh, there is some pan flute in this, which some <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of pan there's flute. a lot of pan flute, which which is a little jarring in some respects um you know but but the strings are gorgeous and i love that romanticism that he brings to that film to help you know because it takes place in multiple time periods and there's a lot of memory and regret going on there and it's just amazing how much the sound and the music does the work in the in the early going of the film to sort of crystallize or elucidate the actor's emotional places and where they are in their lives and where they are where those characters are um the the sound work and correct me if i'm wrong but i think the pan flute i think it's actually zamfir the master of the pan flute as we learned from tv infomercials from years gone by who's actually the main instrumentalist no kidding i didn't know that i I might be wrong about that but i I seem to recall hearing that that was (laughs) the case is that if you're gonna if you're gonna have the pan flute you gotta go for the best and and i think that is who plays uh who plays on, on yeah. that film. And, and and I guess it's worth mentioning that the pan flute actually has a major role in the Battle of Algiers, which is 20 years before Once Upon a Time in America, because he uses it to contrast the the, the percussive piano and the heavy drums uh, of the French forces. And Ali, who's the, the con artist, street hustler, who becomes the revolutionary in Battle of Algiers, uh, it's the pan flute that becomes his signature theme and instrument in that film so you know this isn't it isn't that Morricone suddenly leapt upon this instrument as a buddy but he certainly pulled it out of his uh toolbox in a big way in Once Upon a Time in America yeah yeah and then we I also we also watched from the mid uh, mid 80s uh The Untouchables where I don't I think he did away with the pan flute by <laughs> by then um yeah it doesn't fit it in doesn't really fit but you know it is another gangster movie um, you know, set in the 30s uh, during Prohibition, the story of uh, Elliot Ness and his untouchable agents, the FBI agents. Uh, and there is a much more sort of uh, this this score here is superb, as so many of his scores are. It's operatic, it's insistent, and it's uh, there's this triumphant sections, the very dramatic, almost horror score sections. You're talking about that in some of the Italian work that he did. That but um but um but um you know that like really getting uh, reminding us of the the urgency and the stakes that are are happening on screen uh, and the untouchables was a huge hit uh, 
written by David Mamet, directed by Brian De Palma. It's wildly entertaining. It's a great gangster cop movie, as well as in the middle of the movie, kind of becomes a Western in a weird way. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I really enjoyed seeing it again. It's hard not to be swept up by the way that De Palma, you know, I think people talk about De Palma. We have before, of course, on this podcast, on his sort of like exploitation sort of horror thrillers. And then he, he made a, uh, ste he steered towards more mainstream Hollywood stuff in certain points of his career with The Untouchables and Mission Impossible. But uh, he's such a good mainstream director that his techniques that he used in his maybe more personal films are so... They, they get put to such great use here. Um, and, and that whole scene towards the end uh, inspired by um, the Russian film, you know, with the... the oh, the Battleship. Uh, yeah, Potemkin, the, the Odessa station, Steps yeah. is so amazing. <laughs> um, at the same time, I have to say that in 2020, when we've been reading all about how uh, fictional narratives lift up the cop, this one is really seems out of date in, in those political perspectives. Like, you know, this is real. Although it's it's clear eyed about police corruption in Chicago during Prohibition, it's also very patriarchal. You know, the way basically you have this this heart of gold cop who must go outside his code and. The only and it suggests the only way to beat criminals is to eye for an eye, is to you know use their techniques and and ignore the law and be the best you can be. But also you know it's it's practically <laughs> biblical um, in a way that that is a little hard to take. Oh, of course, Sean Connery, who won an Academy Award, is a Malone, the bigoted cop with the heart of gold. You know that's also a little hard to swallow these days. Oh yeah, when he's going at. Uh... Andy Garcia early in the film trying to see if he can get under his skin is it's like I don't know if he's joking or he's really serious about some of this stuff and uh yeah it and it the other the other thing about this film I think even at the time it was roundly criticized for not being even remotely close to the historical story I mean you know Elliot Ness wrote like Elliot Ness was a real person first of all he because of course people just thought oh he was just a character on this TV show played by Robert Stack in the 50s and 60s or whenever that was on and, but Ellie Ness was a real person. He was a real treasury agent who did work on the case to put Capone behind bars, uh, you know, using uh, his lax uh, income tax statement uh, filing as, a, as an excuse to get him behind bars since they couldn't get him on any real serious criminal activity um, due to the way the setup of his operation. So, I mean, that much is true, but but they, they didn't meet until after Capone had been arrested, you know, here they have a confrontation in a hotel lobby. It's completely fictional. I mean, Frank Nitti, the his Capone's enforcer, really creepily played by Billy Drago, who's a creepy looking guy at the best of times, but here in his white suit and his, you know, iron glare, you know, it's just, you know, it's it's probably his best role, I guess. But what happens to Frank Nitti in this film is is not even close to, to what really happened to him in real life. And in fact, that might actually be an interesting story, but it's... Uh, it's you know th this film bears no bearing on on reality in any way shape or form not that it needs to but it, it's just kind of funny how you know in 1987 when people were becoming bigger sticklers for historical accuracy this film doesn't even doesn't even pretend that it even never existed uh for example i mean i remember at the time it came out and one of the earliest criticisms of the film was the fact that the mounties the canadian mounties are helping ness and his crew stop a bootlegging deal at the canadian border which of course wouldn't happen because well alcohol wasn't illegal in Canada you know what happens on the Canadian side of the border is you know is is 
nobody's business apparently but but here they needed that kind of like you say the the cowboy moment in the film and uh and it's a great sequence it's and uh, you know morricone's music is a big part of why it's such a great sequence but it has uh you know of course it didn't happen at all Mm -hmm. in real life and not that you know again it's one of those things well you know the film is entertaining it's there's no there's really no fat on its narrative bones at all it just it just keeps moving forward and is and is highly entertaining but uh you might want to maybe read an actual book about that period and about these people before you take any of this as being close to reality hi i'm lindsey cameron wilson host of the food podcast but do you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food the food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. Uh, we are talking today about uh, the great uh, film artists who have passed in recent days. Um, we have been speaking about the incredibly prolific and talented Italian composer Ennio Morricone. Um, there is, I, I did a little bit of research. There is one place, at least one place, where Morricone's work overlapped with the with the next artist we're going to talk about, and uh, Ian Holm, who was a wonderfully uh, understated and talented. Uh, British thespian Sir Ian Holm Cuthbert was his full name. He was born in 1931. He died on the 19th of June this year, aged 88, uh, due to uh, something I believe related to Parkinson's disease. But um, he was in a mini series in 1989 called The Endless Game. It's a spy series. Uh, Morricone did the score. It also starred Albert Finney, George Siegel, and Kristen Scott Thomas. And Ian Holm. So that is where these these men. Oh, wow. I just needed a I needed a segue, and I figured there's got to be something, some project. I need to see given that. more Coney's having done 400 movies uh, or more uh, that uh, they overlapped. I haven't seen it either, but now that I know this cast and these creative people, I totally want to seek it out uh, if it's at all available. Um, but uh, yeah, Holm is someone who I had a lot of admiration for every time he showed up. I always loved to see him. Uh, he, in theater, he won a Tony award and Olivier and in film, he won a BAFTA for his role as best actor in supporting role for his part in chariots of fire. He was also nominated for an Oscar for that part. He had a hell of a career in big budget fantasy that a lot of people will recognize him from, including playing Ash, the Android in alien. He was also in the fifth element. He was, Chef Skinner in Ratatouille, and Bilbo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings, uh, and was in Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits and Brazil, and in David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch and Existence. Uh, now, Stephen, you saw one of his earlier films when he was part of a ensemble called Juggernaut, a thriller, with also with like, Richard Harris is in it. What did you make of that? Yeah, it's, it's very much in the mold of uh, films that were coming out at that time. Now, Juggernaut is 1974. Uh, the Poseidon Adventure and um, came out in 72, which is, you know, uh, and before that there was Airport. Uh, and uh, and then there was The Towering Inferno after, and then eventually Earthquake. And so it was the era of the disaster film, the, the kind of uh, 
Hollywood idea of a blockbuster prior to Star Wars and Jaws coming along. So basically, before before Jaws kind of completely changed the game, um, just getting a bunch of A-list and B-list stars in, in one story about a massive event with a lot of special effects. Uh, that, that was her idea of, of a great way to get people into theaters, especially after the studios had suffered the pains of things like Dr. Doolittle and... Um, Hello, Dolly, and Star, and Paint Your Wagon. A lot of these kind of disastrous musicals, they thought, well, well, instead of making disastrous musicals, let's just film disasters. So, uh, you know, we had we had those films, for better or for worse, they're, they're fun to watch now. But but Juggernaut, it's it's a British film. It's, it's not really so much a Hollywood film. It was released, I believe, by uh, MGM or United Artists. Uh, those f- companies have changed hands so many times, it's hard to know where uh, something came out originally but but uh juggernaut is basically airport on a boat (laughs) there's a there's a a a british ocean liner um that has set sail with seven uh, oil um barrels each containing a very trickily rigged bomb on it Uh, and uh and there's a mysterious voice on the phone calling himself juggernaut saying unless he gets five hundred thousand dollars uh, which reminds me of you know the one million dollars in Austin Powers. It's, it's like really, that's it. But he asked for five hundred thousand dollars, and otherwise those those bombs will go off. And um, and so basically, this is about the effort to get a, a, a special bomb disposal team onto that boat in choppy weather um, and defuse the bombs because the the government doesn't want the company to pay up because they don't want to encourage. Uh, terrorism basically uh so and this is for 1974 so we've already seen the all-star uh kind of disaster films this is more the the same idea on a budget but i think in the in the end that ultimately i think works in the film's favor because it's it's not about making sure that every star has their shining moment and all that stuff that you get with say the towering inferno or uh the poseidon adventure it it uh it really is more about the story and the tension of of this uh this bomb crew and what they have to do and it's it's got a great cast i mean we've got a lot of a lot of great british pros like for example the anthony hopkins who plays the head of the 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 super superintendent at scotland yard who is in charge of the actual case uh of trying to find juggernaut on the on the land and then you've got richard harris um who's the kind of mercurial uh bomb disposal expert who's in charge of the crew a getting onto this boat which is enough of a problem in and of itself uh, as well as uh you know, getting to those oil drums and figuring out how to diffuse these things um and then you got ian holm as the uh basically he's the sort of corporate executive for the shipping line that owns the the cruise ship who you know initially just wants to pay the ransom and, and ensure the safety of his passengers and crew and his ship but uh but of course the officials want him to stall and hold off for as long as possible because they don't want to encourage um this uh, juggernaut character uh, in future endeavors. So that's, that's basically the, the setup and that's the, those are the tensions that we have to face. And we get to know some of the passengers. We've also got the captain played by Omar Sharif, um, you know, who's having an affair with one of the passengers who, I guess they have this affair where she regularly takes cruises. And so they're trying to build up the stakes of getting to know some of these passengers. Um, so that you actually feel something for their, their plight, you know, as they realize that there is a bomb on board and that, they are under stress and 
it all works fairly well. I think maybe because Richard Lester is, is a better director than a lot of these films often had. Uh, and he remembers to inject humor where necessary. Uh, Clifton James, who's the, who is the sheriff in, uh, live and let die and, uh, shows up again in man with the golden gun. He's on board as a passenger. Who's also the mayor of an unnamed American city who, uh, knows that something's up. Uh, Roy Kinnear, mm-hmm. who is also in a lot of Richard Lester films. He plays the kind of, social director the, who's kind of trying to keep everybody's spirits up even though he's horribly depressed and hates his job so he gets a lot of great kind of moments where he's like putting on the 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 chippy chappy face and then the next moment he's just grim and and holm is is, is pretty solid i mean this is still pretty early in holm's career um you know he he he'd gotten known uh, he, on the stage, he played a great Richard III in the 1960s, which apparently was one of the best Royal Shakespearean Richard III's they'd ever had. Uh, he was Puck in a filmed version of Midsummer Night's Dream. So he was gradually becoming known. And here he, he plays the, the company man who's you know got his own set of insecurities, which is kind of his wheelhouse, if you will. We can use that metaphor in a, in a shipboard movie. And, 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 and he's great here. It's not a showcase role for him just yet, but he's certainly a welcome presence. It's also just great to see him you know, so young in, in, in a role like this where he certainly holds his own. It, it does show up on uh, TCM fairly regularly and there has been a new Blu-ray of it put out by Kino Lorber. So I, I recommend seeing Juggernaut. It's a great thriller. I mean, if you like that kind of bomb disposal tension, this film does it about as well as any other films do. It does, uh, there are a few explosions. Not, not every bomb gets diffused. So there is some action and some loss over the course of the film. And uh, yeah, it's highly entertaining. Right, yeah, it's been on my list for a while. Um, now, I watched uh, Dream Child from 1985. It's available on um, Amazon Prime, and uh, it is a really interesting film. Sadly, the print that this on Amazon Prime is not a good-looking one. It's uh, it's a it's fuzzy, you know, as so many films from the 80s have that look about them. Um, but it's uh, it's about sort of the difference between childhood imagining and memory. Uh, it's not, and it's not entirely free of creepiness. Oh, it's very creepy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very creepy. Uh, and it's about Lewis Carroll and about his relationship with the real Alice of Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice Little, who became Alice Hargreaves. And it's a story about how the elderly Alice in 1932 is uh, going to the United States to celebrate Lewis Carroll's centenary. And we flash back to idyllic Oxford and Carroll, who's played by Ian Holm, uh, thereby known for his real, in his real name, uh, Dodgson, and he's a stutterer and a mathematics teacher. Um, and uh, in in thirty two, we get Peter Gallagher and his enormous eyebrows <laughs> as a uh, a reporter who is uh, trying to get in and become uh, Alice's agent and make a lot of money while romancing Alice's assistant Lucy, played by, by Nicola Cowper, who Alice treats horribly. Um, so you get this sort of like shifting between two eras plus the kind of dreamy uh, sort of imaginings of, of uh, Alice's memory and, and memory of the stories that Dodgson told her and her imaginings of the, you know, uh, Alice's, the, the, the Mad Hatter and the, the White Rabbit are all created by Jim Henson Muppets, which are incredibly creepy. Um, when you when you hear that this was all written by Dennis Potter, then you might get a sense of why this is creepy. I mean, Potter is is never someone to soft pedal the the grim, and uh, basically he he suggested that the film reveals Carol's quote unquote sexual longing for the the uh, minor, which is totally weird. And you know he was a photographer as well, so he dressed her up and took photographs of her. So 
you know, it's um, it it doesn't go explicitly there, and uh, that's not what co- this kind of film is. But it's about the elder Alice sort of coming to terms with maybe the way that that uh, uh, Dodgson felt about her, and uh, you know, and Holm was so good at playing a, char- a self conscious character. I get you know, I get the, the impression that in real life he was probably a pretty shy person. He has a little of what C- Philip Seymour Hoffman had, that genuine knack for playing characters who have an obvious vulnerability or who are hobbled by what their self-perceived weaknesses are or victims of it. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a, an interesting film and I think maybe one that would benefit from a, a real proper re-release where we could actually see the imagery better because it is pretty fuzzy. Yeah, it was, it was a disappointment in terms of how it looked, but I, I was able to get past that just because of the creations of... of- the Henson uh, uh, factory lab plant, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, the crew that that built the puppets, which looked just like the Tenniel drawings that were in the original editions of Alice in Wonderland. Of course, you put those into 3D, and they are truly terrifying. Uh, and 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 also Coral Brown, who's a wonderful actor. Uh, she was married to Vincent Price. Um, they met on the set of Theater of Blood, uh, and uh, were inseparable up until her death. And and she has a wonderful presence here as uh, as the elderly Alice Hargreaves slash Little, um, and she's wonderful. And her her recollections of that time, filtered, you know, through years and years of experience, are are quite interesting. And and the film, you know, and you know Potter's script. I mean Potter, you know, from Pennies from Heaven and Singing Detective, he loves conflicted characters. That's that's his stock and trade. And and, and Dodgson slash Lewis Carroll, uh, you know, at this point you know, there are more revelations coming out about his life and about his feelings about Alice. And, and there were different camps, you know, stretching from, Oh, he just had that Victorian love of innocence. And his, his infatuation with Alice was purely a platonic regard for the innocence that she represented. And then on the other side of that, you get people saying, no, he was a raging pedophile. So there's, there's different books that take different approaches to his life and and you can seek those out the film walks a pretty fine balance between the two of them and Holm I mean he doesn't come off as a villain or or you know even terribly creepy but there is there's definitely like that last moment where they're having a picnic on the riverbank and he's he's looking at Alice and you have to kind of read into his thoughts as it were as to what he's thinking about Alice and 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 vice versa and and I think that's uh that's a real uh it's a real credit to this film that it can, you can, you can look into it um, any way you want to. Yeah, no, for sure. Now we are running short of time. (laughs) Uh, You know, we got this, I I want to talk a little bit about the suite hereafter, but I think a lot of people will have seen this film, maybe Adam Agoyan's most mainstream film. And it gave uh, Ian Holm his, apparently his first leading role. He's so good in the film. He really brings a lot of steel and intensity in a way that maybe we hadn't seen before from him. Um, but yeah, we also wanted to talk a little bit about um, Carl, Carl Reiner, the great comic writer, director, producer, well known for his TV works. He was born in 1922, July. He, he died on June 29th at age 98. Um, and, you know, he made a couple of films as a filmmaker, as a director, maybe more than a couple, but uh, best known for the Steve Martin comedies like The Jerk, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, and The Man with Two Brains. Um, we watched Where's Papa, which, frankly, the less said about the better. I, I hated Where's <laughs> yes, Papa. Yes, you did. <laughs> I really did. I thought it was. I thought the humor was really uh, obscene and and uh, unpleasant. It's uh, kind of the but, ultimate in bad taste. Before yeah, John Waters came along. So, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, there is a scene with Rob Reiner uh, and I, that I really liked in the courtroom. That was really funny, but there's stuff that just falls completely flat, and you're just like, how is... You know, Ruth Gordon is great. She's in it as well. But uh, it is it is outrageous for, for you know, a sexist, racist, ageist. It even has a rape joke. So, you know, you know what you're, you're getting. Yes, um, if you're not all, offended by this movie, check your pulse. Yeah. <laughs> um, but All of Me from 1984 yes. is really wonderful. That was really fun to revisit. I think it's that this and L.A. Story are two of my favorite Steve Martin comedies. Uh, here he plays a lawyer and a jazz musician who... Uh, who gets involved with uh, Edwina Cutwater, played by Lily Tomlin, who's dying, and and Edwina's spirit goes into Steve Martin's body, which cue a lot of amazing physical humor. Um, it's a it's a it's a body switching comedy that uh, you know, which they used to make a lot of. They don't do so much anymore, but it's a uh, it's a really delightful film. It still holds up, uh, you know, thirty five, thirty six years later. Um, so I, I liked watching this one a lot more. Yeah, you can't go wrong with any of his Steve Martin movies. Really, they they worked on. Well, I can think of four features. I don't. There may have, there may have been more, but certainly The Jerk, and then uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which was his film noir pastiche, where they actually had Steve Martin intercut with clips from classic films, uh, which I thought worked very well. I haven't watched it in a while, but I, I remember being very fond of that. And then uh, The Man with Two Brains, which is kind of like a mad scientist um, pastiche. With uh, with some some fun moments and some great bits of dialogue and a great Kathleen Turner performance as well. Uh, you know she she didn't do a ton of comedy. I guess maybe the Romancing the Stone movies are technically comedies, but she's wonderful in that. Uh, and of course, and then All of Me, which is I think a more you know it, it's less parody and pastiche and it's more of its own kind of mature comedic film with a great uh, great premise. And apparently, there's going to be a remake with. Uh, Queen Latifah at one point that I guess never got off the ground, but uh, I almost could see it happening, but it, um, who knows, maybe someone will bring that concept back sometime down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I would be okay with that. Um, so yeah, now, uh, we are just sort of waking up to the news today. We're recording yes. this on a Sunday that the, the great character actor, John Saxon has passed away. Uh, he had an astonishing career. I'm just looking at a tweet by, uh, Martin Contero, uh, on on Twitter and listing the directors that Saxon worked with, including John Huston, Otto Preminger, Don Siegel, Wes Craven in those Nightmare movies, David Cronenberg, uh, Roger Corman, Sidney Pollack, Dario Argento, and Quentin Tarantino. Like, what a career. Thanks so much for listening to this in memoriam episode of Lens Me Your Ears. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. You can find me on Twitter uh, at my the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And Stephen, you're on Twitter as well. Yes, I'm at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e, and you can find my writing on various topics in the Chronicle Herald. Uh, and we have a Twitter account for this podcast as well, Lens Me Your Ears, and we're also on Facebook. We also have a Patreon account. If you care to help us support what we do here, we'd very much appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much for CKDU, for the studio facilities, when we are able to be there to record in your studios and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And many thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. Thanks to you so much for listening to Lens Me Your Ears.
Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.